This morning's reading is Galatians 3. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Chapter 3, Galatians. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again, I ask, does God give you his Spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by you believe, but your believing what you heard. <clears throat> so also Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Understand then that those who have faith are children of Abraham. Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abraham. All nations will be blessed through you. So those who rely on faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. As it is written, God cursed everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. Clearly, no one who relies on the law is justified before God because the righteous will live by faith. The law is not based on faith. On the contrary, it says the person who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks very much, Roger. Well, I think even if you're not um, a football fan, you'll have probably found it difficult to avoid um, the news that uh, Leicester City have won the Premier League. Um, starting the beginning of the season, 5,000 to 1 outsiders. Um, it's been much speculation about how they achieved it. Was it their training regime? Was it the consistency of their, their team selection? Or was it the tactics in which they got the ball upfield quickly and got shots on goal as quickly as they could? But whatever it was, the question is what will they do now? Having won the title, will they change their tactics? Do what all the other teams are doing? Uh, try and retain possession more? Change the lineup more frequently? Adjust the training regime? Buy some more expensive players? Well, in some ways, that'd be pretty foolish, wouldn't it? Because if you found a successful winning formula, why change it? Well, that's really the question Paul asks of the Galatians in the passage we're looking at this morning. The first couple of chapters, he's been talking about the uniqueness of the gospel, 
that there is no gospel other than the gospel of grace, which has the power to change lives, and not least his own life. And at the end of chapter 2, Paul says there, I do not set aside the grace of God. For if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And now in chapter 3, he turns his attention to the Galatians and says, What about you, you foolish Galatians? Who has bewitched you? How could you be so stupid? Well, what's his big problem with them? What exactly have they done wrong? Well, in short, they've set aside the gospel of grace. Grace is about what Christ has done for us so we can receive salvation by faith. Whereas the works of the law or legalism is about what we try and do to earn salvation for ourselves. And the big theme in Galatians, as we've been picking up and we'll carry on looking at over the next couple of weeks, is that contrast between salvation by faith and salvation by works of the law. And in this passage here, now it comes to a head. In just these few verses, ten times, the word faith or believing is mentioned, and seven times the law. And what Paul is basically saying to the Galatians is you were saved by faith, so why now turn to works of the law? Well, what are the points he makes to, to back this up? The first thing is that the gospel that saves us is the same one that enables us to grow in our faith. How were the Galatians saved? Well, in verse 1, Paul says, Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. In other words, at the heart of the gospel presentation you received, you heard, was the fact that Jesus died for you. His work was completed on the cross. And the benefits of his work are still available to you now, to you today, to all who trust in him. If he's saying, if you start to add to that your own good works, you are saying the work of Christ was somehow not sufficient. And of course, that is a great offense to him. It means, as we just read, if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. And so Paul goes on to ask them in verse 3, have a look. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law? Or by believing what you have heard? Notice he's not questioning whether or not they have the Spirit. He's writing to them as genuine believers. But he's reminding them of how they received the Spirit. That it was by faith. Paul came to Galatia. He preached the gospel. He portrayed Christ as crucified. They heard the gospel. They believed. They received the Spirit. There were no works of the law involved in any of that. It was all about God. He gave you his Spirit. He worked miracles among you. And of course the Spirit was at work in all of this, enabling them to believe in the first place. It was the Spirit who enabled them to see Christ crucified. Who gave the power to that presentation that, that meant it touched their hearts and as well as their minds. So that is how you began, Paul is saying, why are you seeking now to grow in your faith by changing the gospel, to follow the works of the law? 
Well, hopefully we're seeing that the key differences between faith in the gospel and doing the works of the law. And there's a, just want to do a little chart here to, to show them a brief contrast. Um, the works of the law, first of all, are about do this. The gospel of grace is that Christ has done it all. Under the works of the law, it's about works of human achievement. Whereas the gospel of grace, it's faith in Christ's achievement. And finally, the works of the law make demands. They bid us obey. Whereas the gospel of grace brings promises and bids us to believe. Now, you would think, well, why would anyone bother with works of the law when the gospel is this free gift? Well, because our human pride that doesn't like free gifts says, well, I actually want to feel that I've somehow done something for that, that I've earned it myself. I was at a day conference um, in Oxford last week, organised by the, the South Central Gospel Partnership. It's a group of uh, um, gospel-believing churches of different denominations in this area, of which we are part of. And one of the speakers there, Dan Strange, um, mentioned how he'd taken part in a, a radio interview. Um, it was about hell and, and judgment. And he took part, there were three of them taking part. He, he himself, a Catholic priest uh, and a liberal Protestant. And what surprised him, he said, was not they just found the, the concept of hell and judgment difficult, but that they found the concept of grace hard to accept. The fact that people didn't need to contribute to their salvation, that it was all of Christ. And it's a section when we do the Christianity Explore course, uh, which causes the most questions when people realize that the things they put their reliance on their good works, their church attendance, their, their, their baptism. Actually, those works count for nothing. When we truly appreciate the gospel of grace, it is amazingly liberating. It means we don't need to worry about whether we've done enough. Now, for us in the church where the gospel of grace has been taught for, for many years, um, you may be asking, why do we need to hear this again? And the answer is because all of us are susceptible to setting aside the gospel with which we came to faith and sometimes unconsciously pursuing a gospel of good works. Paul asks the Galatians here, who has bewitched you? He is aware that this is not just about false teachers coming. This is about the devil deceiving them. The devil who still deceives us today. The greatest way in which he does that is by undermining the gospel of grace. To make us question whether we really, really are saved. Whether God really is so loving that he will rely on what his son did to make us righteous. What might that look like today? Well, if we come back to what Paul said, he said, after beginning by means of the spirit, and this is verse 3, Are you now trying to finish by means of the flesh? Flesh and law here are used in the same sort of context. And what they're conveying is the idea of self-reliance, trusting in our own human abilities rather than trusting in God. And that is a real danger, isn't it? That we know that we need the grace of God to be saved. We can't do that by ourselves, by our own human effort. But when it comes to living the Christian life, we slip into doing it in our own strength. 
Read again what Paul said in chapter 2, verse 19. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But of course, it's easy sometimes not to live by faith in the Son of God, but by faith in ourselves. So, for example, if we think about our daily worries, instead of taking them to Jesus, we try and sort them ourselves. And of course, we fail, and when we become stressed and full of anxiety, instead of handing them over to Jesus and trusting in him that he will answer them, he will give us the strength to cope. Or we think about the terrible things that might happen in our lives and, and, and we stress out whether we have done enough to prevent them happening. Or something bad does happen and uh, we beat ourselves up that we didn't do enough to stop it happening. Now, this is not an excuse for passivity and decision or, or just being slack, but it is asking what place have you given God in all of this? Because to grow in grace is to grow in faith and dependence on him. And so when we think about our financial situation as a church, as we were doing on a Thursday evening, we're right to be concerned, but we're not right to panic. If it all was all down to us, then we would panic. But it's not. That is where God calls us to seek his help, to trust in him. Well, what should we do if we're beginning to think and respond in this way in our lives in different situations? Let's go back to what we first believed. And how did the Galatians first come to believe? It was that before their very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly, was portrayed as clearly, clearly portrayed as crucified. They realized that he did it all for them. And when they believed what they heard, God gave his spirit to them. He worked miracles in them. Who's going to do the miracles in our lives? It's not us, is it? It's the spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't just do supernatural miracles. He's not the one we, we call on when all else fails. As Christians, the Holy Spirit is within us. And we can and we should call on him at all times to give us the help we need, whether it's taking an exam, whether it's coping with an illness or a bereavement or dealing with our financial worries. We don't need to rely on ourselves Let's go back to see what else Paul was saying to the Galatians. Because he now turns to the Old Testament. The false teachers were pointing to the need to obey the, the Old Testament. The, the ceremonial commandments. The ones that were, were designed for the Jews for a specific time in their history. These are the laws which show that they were set apart as, as God's people. The nation who, at God's set time, would would bring salvation to all nations. Now, though obedience to these laws was pleasing to God, it was not that outward obedience which made them right with God. It was their faith in him. And so one of the ways in which Paul demonstrates that the Galatians should not give up the gospel of grace is by pointing to Abraham. Paul says the way in which Abraham the great father of the faith was saved, was not by works of the law, but by faith. 
Have a look at verse 6. It says, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now that is a quote from Genesis 15. Notice it doesn't say Abraham kept all the laws of the Old Testament and it was credited to him as righteousness. It doesn't say Abraham was perfectly obedient and it was credited to him as righteousness. No, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. The children of God are not simply the Jewish descendants of Abraham. They're those of any nation who have put their trust in God. The great promise that God made to Abraham in Genesis 18, again quoted here, was that all nations will be blessed through you. The greatest blessing that anyone can receive is to be justified, to be made right with God. And the way in which people will be justified will be through faith. Now, before we go any further, just, let's just remind ourselves of a couple of these terms. We did consider justification last week, um, but for those uh, who weren't here, or for those who were sleeping at that time, uh, justification is to be declared just or innocent or righteous, even though we are all sinful. So in the sight of God, we are considered acceptable. And the reason we can be declared innocent, even though we are really guilty, is because Jesus was declared guilty in our place. In this passage, Paul uses another way of explaining it here by saying Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. If you're not familiar with the story of Abraham, he was married to Sarah, who was childless, who couldn't have children. And, uh, and even in their old age, God promised him that he would have many descendants, as numerous as the stars he could see in the sky. It seemed humanly impossible. But Abraham believed him. And even when God tested him by uh, telling him to sacrifice his only son, he still believed him. So what does it mean to say his faith was credited to him as righteousness? Well, another technical term here for what is going on is, um, is imputation. Now, it's got nothing to do with cutting off your, your arm or your leg. Um, what it means is, to, again, to be considered as righteousness on the basis of the righteousness of someone else, Jesus Christ. So when we turn to other passages in our Bibles, like our Romans, um, what we see is not actually our faith that is our righteousness, but it's our faith that unites us to Christ. And when God sees our union with Christ, he sees the righteousness of Christ as our righteousness. John Bunyan, the, the author of Pilgrim's Progress, um, he describes this amazing moment. He grasped this um, in his book, Grace Abounding. Uh, and let me just uh, read from that. He says, one day, as I was passing into the field... This sentence fell upon my soul. Thy righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that whatever I was, whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, he lacks righteousness. For that was just in front of him. 
I also saw, moreover, that it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, nor yet my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Now did my chains fall off my legs indeed. Now went I also home rejoicing for the grace and love of God. If righteousness is credited to us, then it doesn't change depending on how strong or weak our faith is. It's perfect because it's Christ. And that therefore helps us to forget ourselves and focus on him. That's why we can rejoice in all things and know God's peace because our acceptance before him doesn't depend on us but on Jesus. And if you haven't yet known that joy, that freedom that comes through being at peace with God, then can I urge you to put your trust in Christ, to look at him. Put your faith in him. Well, the final point Paul makes is that those who try to keep the law are under a curse, whereas those who live by faith are freed from this curse. Have a look at verse 10. He says, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. To rely on or to live by the law is to rely on it for your ultimate happiness. And whatever we rely on in life is, um, is what gives our life meaning. And work out what it is we rely on. Just to ask yourself, what if that were thing were, or person were taken away would make my life no longer worth living? The reason that those who rely on the works of the law are under a curse is because it is impossible for human beings to perfectly, to be perfectly obedient to the law. And so if we try and achieve salvation by that, we will fail. We will be under a curse. And there's another reason why those who seek to save themselves by their own efforts are under a curse. And that is that either they will suffer from anxiety, insecurity, envy, because they will never know if they have done enough. Or at the other extreme, they will become proud and arrogant and condescending, because they think they have kept all the laws perfectly. So how do we escape the curse and enjoy the blessing that has been promised to, to all nations? Well, the answer is in verse 13. We look to Jesus. We look to Jesus because he is the one who redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And Paul goes on to quote from Deuteronomy. Cursed is everyone who is hung on a pole or on a tree. When a dead body was hung on a tree in the Old Testament times, that was a symbol of divine rejection. And the link with Jesus was that he also experienced divine rejection. The divine rejection or curse that we should have experienced as a result of our sin, he experienced for us on our behalf. Why did he do that? So we might receive the blessing that he deserved. And that's the other side of this, this coin of, of imputation. We talked about how righteousness can be credited to us. But for that to happen, our sin has to be credited to someone else. Our sins, our curse are given, they are imputed to Christ. 
and his righteousness and blessing and spirit are given to us. That is a great exchange, isn't it? And Jesus didn't just take the curse, he became the curse. As it says in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. He was regarded as a sinner by God. And that means that we are regarded as righteous by God. When we talk about being saved, I think we often just um, think about the fact that we have been forgiven, which clearly we have, and that is greater to think about. But it's a bit more than that, isn't it? Because forgiveness is wiping the, the slate clean. And that's almost a sort of neutral position. But becoming righteous is a positive thing. It's to be highly regarded in God's sight. It's to be in favor with him. So how does this truth change the way we live, though? In what way does the gospel free us from the curse of the law? If we are Christians already, how do we stop our everyday Christian lives from becoming works of the law and instead experiencing the freedom, the blessing that comes from knowing we have the righteousness of God? It's being credited to us. Well, maybe this little illustration will help as we come to, to an end. If you're a teenager here, it'll probably be much more real to you. Um, if you're not, then just think back a few years, or many years in some cases. Just imagine you've got another year left at school, and you've been given an unconditional offer of a place at university. Smiley face we see there on the picture. What do you do with that? Well, one thing you could think... That is brilliant. I don't need to to study for the next year. I'll go out every night. I'll enjoy myself. I'll do all the things I want to do. And the next year I'll go up and take my place at university. Even having flunked my exams, it doesn't matter. You could think, that's great. But it's almost just too good to be true. I still need to make sure I get my three A stars. uh, Just in case, I don't know, they may change their mind or something. And so you work really hard, you get stressed out, and it's not a very enjoyable year. Now the third option coming up here, I think some pictures might come up as well if they're on the screen. Those are the first two two options. The third option is you think, that's great. I can now study without all the stress of worrying whether or not I get those grades. I'll still work hard because I I want to have a good grounding in my subject when I get to university. But I can enjoy this next year. Now, if those are analogies to to, to living the Christian life, I'm sure you can make the connection there, what I'm trying to say. Which one do you relate to most? Is it just a ticket to heaven? Or is it the source of all joy? When you think about all the things you do in your life as a Christian, meeting with other Christians to to worship, to pray, to read the Bible, serving in the church, giving towards the Lord's work, showing love and concern towards others, do you do them with joy or out of a sense of, of duty? 
Or the things you don't do as a Christian, or that you don't get angry, you don't lie, you don't gossip, you, you don't get drunk, you, you're not sexually promiscuous, you're not extravagant with your money. Do you not do those things because, well, your heart is in a completely different place, you don't want to do those things anyway. Or actually just because you know you shouldn't do them, whereas really you would really love to do them. If you are a, if you are a Christian here this morning and you are struggling in your Christian faith, then do please come and have a word with any of the pastors at any time. Uh, that's what we're here for. Um, but can I encourage you to focus, can I encourage all of us to focus, to gaze on Jesus Christ crucified for you and see that everything you can possibly need has been achieved for you through his death. As it says in verse 14, he redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus, so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. Let's have a moment to, to be quiet and to, to speak to, to, to God. Um, tell him where you're at, tell him what you're thinking, tell him what you're worried about, and ask him to help you. Ask him to help you see Jesus Christ crucified. I'll pray in a minute. Father God, we praise you that in Christ it has been achieved, it has been finished, that we have all we need. We have all we need to be right with you, to be in favour with you. We thank you for the peace and joy that brings. Lord, if we don't know that peace or joy yet, then we pray that you would show it to us by the power of your spirit. And Lord, if we have been saved, but we are living a life, a Christian life, where we somehow are trying to, to add to that, we don't feel completely at peace, then Lord, take us back to the cross of Christ. Help us to know that whatever the, the level of our faith at this current time, we are still perfectly righteous in your sight. And Lord, as we experience that great freedom, then we pray that it would change our lives. And they will be filled with joy and peace. In Jesus' name, amen.